So much to talk about this week. Ollie Hoare has set a world leader at 353 in the mile. The Drake relays were held. An Olympian has been DQ'd for spitting in a race. Two top pros have failed to beat Weijo's 10,000 meter PR. And a best-selling author says, yours truly, that's me, Rojo, should be a Cobert expert. All of that and more on this week's podcast. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson and welcoming you to Track Talk, where each week, myself, my twin brother, Weldon Johnson, as well as ace staff writer, Jonathan Galt, break down the world of running for you, get you ready for the week ahead. Plus, at the end of this podcast, we're going to have a lengthy interview with the most famous runner in America right now, the man being featured in a national advertising campaign, Peter Walsh, the former owner of Coogan's, the world-famous restaurant and bar that was right next to the armory, is going to be joining us for a fascinating interview that's going to be will mesmerize you. He's got so many great stories to tell, so that's coming up. But guys, I want to start with something that we did not get to in last week's show. We should have. It was one of the things I was most interested in. A message board poster posed a question, folks. I think, John, you have the details exactly how they worded it. But who would win at 5,000 meters right now? Shelby Houlihan, the American women's record holder, or Matthew Sensowitz, her sort of ex-boyfriend or BFF, or I don't know what you want to call it, friends with benefit, Olympic gold medalist, Matthew Sensowitz. Robert, we have a serious podcast, and this is what you want to discuss? This is ridiculous. I guess I'll be branded as a sexist or something for thinking that a guy who's run 13 flat for 5K could smoke Shelby at 5K right now. Matthew Central, what's in? It's like, why are we even debating this? we got the Brussels Diamond League this week. Mo Farah is returning to the track. We have all these cool track things, and this is what you want to start with. But, hey, go ahead. I don't want to be branded a sexist. Yeah, it, it's this is ridiculous. Well, then, you know, looking on the on the message boards, there's one thread, Shelby Houlihan versus Matthew Centrowitz in 5,000 right now. There's another one, Centrowitz looks finished. It's not the slow time, the 800 last night that makes me think this. This was when he ran 150 out in Oregon. It's his unwillingness to even get in the mix. Kerr made them all look like boys, sure, but I was surprised to see Centro actually looking spent after that effort. If you watch the stream, he was hanging over the fence. Might be time for him to move up to the 5K while he's still got some speed. So Centrowitz, this guy, yeah, he's the Olympic champion. He's being slanted on the boards. The person who started the thread about him versus Houlihan. I actually commend them because that's a great let's run thread. I definitely clicked on it. I'm like, this is ridiculous, but it's also kind of funny. But no, Matthew Centrowitz, again, 150. Shelby Houlihan tried really, really hard to break two minutes the 800 and couldn't do it just now. Centro runs 150 and he's, you know, not even close to his peak. He would smoke her in a 5K. It wouldn't be close. As for whether he looks finished, I mean, that's a more fair question to say, is this guy done? I still think it's ridiculous because he ran 332-13 flat last year. You know, we know this guy hasn't been 100%. He's been a bit banged up this year. He's always been banged up since the Olympics. It seems like he hasn't put together a healthy season. But he's still insanely talented. I still think he's going to make the Olympic team next year. I don't think he's done. But that's at least... I'm not going to have him slant and say Shelby Houlihan would beat him in a 5K. That's absurd. Sorry you guys didn't like the topic. I just saw that it was in the show notes for last week. I thought it was an interesting question. I'm glad that everyone agrees with me. This was a very popular thread on Let's Run. And I thought there's no way somebody who's run 13 flat is going to lose to someone who's run 1423, particularly when they just ran 150 for 800. Now, if it was a pure 150, 800 meter runner, maybe they could run 1423. But this is a guy that ran 13 flat. So we're all on the same same boat here. It was just so far out of the realm. I didn't even think about it. 
I probably should read the thread because it's probably pretty amusing. Are there any like funny posts we need to highlight? Now I'm feeling bad for slamming a poster who probably brought a lot of views to the website, but were there any strong arguments made in Shelby's t- defense? Uh, th- this one was funny. Uh, well, since Centro has difficulty breaking three flat for 800, I think no contest Houlihan will destroy him. That's because Centro ran a couple 800s just to sort of for hitting the race requirement for his contract, and I think he ran 303 and 308. So that's uh, that's uh, amusing. All right, guys. Before we move on to more serious news of the last week, I want to ask people to support this website. We need your support. Have you joined the Let's Run? Have you become a founding member of our supporters club? We were supposed to end the free t-shirt offer if you signed up yesterday, but if you email me at vip at letsrun.com, vip at letsrun.com, after signing up at letsrun.com slash subscribe, I will send you the free 15940 GOAT t-shirt if you sign up. So do that quickly because we're going to be ordering the shirts this week. Or you could also support us by signing up for the letsrun.com fall training and racing program. Go to letsrun.com slash coaching. And folks, in this regards, I have big news to break. Let's do the breaking news sound. Jonathan, in recent weeks on this podcast, we've talked about me getting back into the coaching ranks. You've asked repeatedly, have I applied to your alma mater, Dartmouth? Sounds like you're begging me to take over the Big Green and take them back to the heights that Vinland Anna once took them to. Well, I'm just letting everyone else know that our listeners, if you don't apply for this job or tell a great coach for it, Rojo's going to get it. So just letting them know. Not that I'd be totally opposed. I like Robert. I think he's a good coach. I, I, but I had to let the Jonathan know in recent podcasts, I don't apply for jobs like this. When you're at a high status in the sport, you let people come to you and beg and pursue you. I mean, we've seen from Let's Run friend Julie Culley. She just resigned the Georgetown job. It's a very demanding job for new parents, male or female. So when you have little kids, you don't necessarily want to get back into it. But I have been offered, very exciting to say, that I have been offered a college coaching job without even applying. And this is from a, country, a program that has been off once, at least one men's NCAA team title. I'm not going to say the name of the sport. Received this email this week. Well, you'll say the sport. I mean, not the country. name of the school. I don't want to say the name of the school. Dear Rojo, I go to blank. And I did this, your summer training program. Our cross-country coach has left, and now we don't have a coach. Our director of track and field has suggested we get our training from the mid-D coach. But I want to be trained by you guys, and we'll do the fall training program. And I'm going to try to get my entire team to do so. There you have it, folks. College teams begging yours truly to coach them. I can also coach you as well. So go to letsrun.com slash coaching. Support the website, Get Faster, and... It's a win-win-win. Yeah. If you want to get faster, sign up. I think it's a testament to Robert. He already has a Division One team wanting to be coached by him. He didn't need his ego inflated. And yeah, thank you to everybody who signed up for the, for the Supporters Club. It was great. And Robert has decided to extend for podcast listeners the t-shirt offer. If you email him, vip at letsrun.com. Everyone else, if you haven't submitted your sizes, send your size to vip at letsrun.com. Or if you filled out the form, you're good there. All right, so there was no Diamond League this past week, which I missed terribly. Uh, I, I got to say, 
you know, after having the brilliance of Monaco and then the, you know, decentness of Stockholm, not having a Diamond League to watch last week kind of bummed me out. But we did have some other results. You know, there was the blue, the Drake Blue Oval Showcase. So that's essentially the makeup Drake relays. There was a Sunset Tour meet. There was South Carolina Track Fest. There was the New Zealand Cross Country Challenge, not championship, but challenge. Uh, Robert, where do you want to start from last weekend? Why don't we start with the South Carolina Track Fest? It's just a little bit disappointing. I mean, people now know my coaching expertise. Maybe some of these shoe companies should hire me as a consultant on Athletics Club. You you don't continue to listen to me. I said that Ollie Hoare needs to get to Europe to run fast. He shows up at the South Carolina Track Fest and just destroys everybody. 353 in the mile, world leader. Second place is 358. Uh, the the high schooler, uh, Reinhardt Harrison, tried to break four. He had run 401. He slowed down to 402. But, you know, Hort went for it in this race, went out 154, and then blew up a little bit or just kind of held on basically the second half. But very impressive. I mean, the guy is making a mockery of the U.S. competition. Maybe at a minimum, we should get Horde and care. If Josh, he and Josh care aren't going to go to Europe, maybe they should just at least agree to race each other. But it seems like the, the theme of this, of this COVID season has been the American based stars can't even race each other, even in America, even if they're like running like 45 minutes apart from each other, they decide to, to avoid each other. Don't get me started. We're seeing craziness during COVID, but I just wanted to give a, th- a thumbs up to Ollie Hoare. I think we need to settle that, Robert, because Josh Kerr, 2017 NCAA 1500 champ. Ollie Hoare, 2018 NCAA 1500 champ. Upset Josh Kerr in that race, in Josh Kerr's final collegiate race. So there's a bit of a rivalry there. It'll be nice to see him square off, sort of, uh, if they can find a neutral venue before the season. And then the other meet that grabbed my attention was the Sunset Tour meet out in LA, where Edward Cheswick ran the 10,000, 2742.69. I, I don't know. It's a PB for him, but it does nothing for me. Like, I don't even see the point of running a 10,000 and 2742. Like, you can't qualify for the Olympics. Uh, I don't quite get the point of this. Does anyone get it? Like, it's a race. I mean, they have to race over a certain distance, and he's already run a 5,000 last week. So, 10,000 seems fairly logical to me. But what struck me here was a couple of people who did not win the race. Two prominent names that I noticed, uh, Ben Blankenship, the 1,500-meter runner, made his 10,000 debut, 2808.20, not bad. Also, former NCAA champ Ben Flanagan, the Canadian who now runs for the Reebok Boston Track Club, 2806.88 PB. But folks, what struck me about both these results is neither one is faster than our Inspiration for the website. The man that put LutzRun.com on his chest and got the masses to come here 20 years ago. Weldon, do you remember what your 10,000-meter PB is? Um, yeah. Do I know my 10K PR? Yeah, 2806. But that sounds like the same that Flanagan ran. You need the decimals, Weldon. We need to go to the hundreds. I did not to know that. This. I did not know that. So, th- folks, this is another example of why you need the LutzRun.com fall training plan. Well, doesn't know his own BR, but I called John Kellogg, who helps me coach these athletes. And I said, well, John, I called him up last night. And I said, John, what's Weldon's 10,000 meter PR? And he goes, 2806.58. Instantly, there was no hesitation. And then I asked him, what's the second fastest time that Weldon ever ran? And he said, I don't even remember this one. It was like 2808.33. So the human computer 
will also help coach you. But Weldon, congratulations. You, your time has stood the test of time. Your PR is still better than some pretty good runners. So, like, what's your point in discussing them? Like, neither one of these guys, no offense, Ben Flanagan, NCAA champion, or Ben Blankenship, I guess do two Bens. You guys are not going to be world factors at 10K. I mean, I think Flanagan's won some road races and stuff and can probably be a good national-level pro from Canada. But, like, what a – not – maybe we shouldn't be totally elitist, but, like, you're just saying they're off base. I think it's a 10K debut, a Blankenship. Like, what's the point of discussing them – because I don't want to go discuss Cheswick. I think there's a lot to discuss there. I'm thinking Robert just made a mistake here. Normally, he spends the podcast patting himself on the back, and somehow he like mixed up his identity. Maybe it's identical twins thing. He decided to pat you on the back for once instead. Robert, what? Well, I know on? how much I do love to praise myself, and I figured my genetic equal would enjoy being praised. I was trying to be nice to Weldon. I feel like he may be getting a little bit old. There's a thread on Let's... So your DNA ran faster. Yes, than my DNA ran faster. Dragon. And there's a thread on Let's Run, like, what's it like to turn 50? I feel like Weldon may be contemplating that since he's over 40. I wanted him to feel young again and still vibrant. I'm just not in a good mood, guys, to discuss my own running. I don't know if you guys knew, but the last race of the cross-country, the Connecticut Cross-Country Series, I'm not sure of the official name that I've been running in with last night. It was the final race of the year, and I went out and ran it, John. Did you get out kicked by that 13-year-old, Weldon? I got out kicked by a lot of 13-year-olds. I went out and ran it. And my one question, you know, my wife comes home is like, did you win? That's what she asked last time. And I can't really break it to her that I got beat by about three minutes. Well, I did break it to her. But this time again, first thing she said is, did you win? And I looked up the results. I think the first time I was in the top 10. This time I wasn't even the top 20. I was 21st place, John. Huge step back. I did everything you're not supposed to do. I didn't train for two weeks. And then on Saturday, I went out and actually did intervals. I'm like, I got the final race. I got to get in a workout. I mean, I can't believe I psyched myself out for the COVID-19 cross-country races I'm doing. Did some intervals. I felt good about them. And then I was so sore yesterday. It was crazy. I'm getting old. that You're sore three days later instead of two. So, ugh. but great series this was fun i i did it big turnout yesterday i'm glad people are racing somewhere and soon hopefully the rest of america can be racing but can we get a little bit more detail on this other than you were out kicked by some you know preteens like what was the distance and time do you have those okay evaluate my performance i'm just looking off the official race time this one officially was 2.3 miles and it says i ran oh should i say 639 per mile that sounds terrible. Anyway, the other one was 2.7 miles, and I ran one second slower, and it was about 20 degrees hotter, and it's hilly. So it was cooler four weeks later and shorter, and I only improved a second. I was trying to you know triangulate times versus people who I was with next time, and they were all running like 10 or 15 seconds a mile faster, and I was only one second faster. All right. Well, let's talk about someone who's running the listeners might care about more. Edward Cheserwack. Weldon, you, you got a take on this? Okay. How many years ago did Ed graduate from Oregon? Three years. How many NCAA titles did he have at the time, John? I think he won 15, seven, 17. I think 15 individual, two DMRs. Right. So it's only been three years, but I think what Weldon's going to be getting at is like, what has this guy done as a pro? This is one of the most hyped, most promoted, biggest college stars ever. And Weldon's well, probably thinking what I did. Like, he's done absolutely nothing as a pro. But in reality, is that really true? I mean, his PRs in the 5,000 have come down from 13, 18 
1304. And he has run a 349 indoor mile. So he's, I've forgotten about those things, but I kind of agree with Weldon. I know Weldon was going to go. He's like, it seems like this guy's done nothing, but I'm not sure if that's entirely fair. Yeah. Let, all right. Let me mount my defense then for Ed Chez. 2017, he turns pro, but he missed NCAAs because he was injured. His back was injured from carrying Oregon for four years. And so he didn't race that summer. Okay. That's understandable. 2018, he runs that 349 indoor mile, super hyped up in, you know, in Boston. Everyone's super excited. He runs the pre-classic. He, everyone's like, okay, it's a two mile at pre. Can this guy beat some of the best of the world? This is going to be his coming out party. He runs 831. It comes out later. He's not totally healthy. He doesn't race at all again that summer until November. So I think he's, he's injured that summer as well. 2019, he finally goes over to Europe and races some. He runs... You know, some decent races, 743 out in Lucerne and then 1304 in Houston. Doesn't get into a Diamond League. I assume they were trying to, but that's sort of the... He's still running deep. Like, 1304 is not bad. But I think the issue is he's a man without a country. And so if you're not running Diamond Leagues and you're not running World Championships or National Championships or anything like that, it's hard to get excited about that when you're just... All you can run is some times. But John... You're Edward Cheserick. You should be running Diamond Leagues. That's the goal. You need to be running Diamond Leagues. And it's really interesting to look at, right? 2017, he's hurt. 2018, he runs the 349 indoors, hurt outdoors. So then I guess last year, it's kind of crazy, but you're still, that's, this is his third summer as a professional. He does run a 1304 and wins in, um, what's it called? Houston. Is that how you say it? Houston. So he won Carlsbad, whatever. But... 1304 as a pro, as an American, it's pretty good. As an international, it's not. You need to be in Diamond Leagues. And then I guess this year, it's COVID. So we're now going to be his fourth summer out from college after he graduated. And what, or no, this is already the fourth, right? Yeah, 17, 18, 19. So we're going to be his fifth summer out from college. And like, where is he going? Like Robert was saying, like, Oh, Sketcher's killing him. He needs to be in a group. I, I don't. He's had some success, but like the goals, if you're in one of the top groups or training with one of the top coaches, the goals are like you got to be running 1250. You got to be competing on the Diamond League. And maybe he wants to do those things, but like how can he ever get to that level? Or is he just going to be a 13 0 guy? Or is it all contingent upon becoming an American citizen? Let's put that 13 4 in context, though. One of the reasons, I mean, I guess he ran 1308 indoors earlier that year, so I, I'm trying to, I don't really know why you couldn't get into a Diamond League, but 1304 in Houston, that kind of proves, hey, yes, if you win, he won that race. So that kind of shows the chops needed to run in a Diamond League, but that he didn't run in any of the Diamond Leagues. Getting in the Diamond League final, now you need Diamond League points. You can't just show up and run the Diamond League final, and there's only four or five Ks, now they don't even have the 5K in the Diamond League. I mean, I, I we want to see him on the Diamond League, but it's kind of hard to get in there. And if you're not in the Diamond League, you're not going to be running 1250. If you want to be a world-class athlete, somehow you need to get in top at meets. I don't know how it's done. I'm not an agent. Either if his agent can't get him in or if he just needs to run faster or what it is. If you look at last year, I guess he did run the th- win 1308 indoors and win a race and 1304 and win a race. He can't compete at Worlds. That sucks. But somehow he needs to be getting these races. And I guess this year's loss. But for me, like 2740, it's like, what's the point? Why even bother go running this race unless he's sort of testing 
the 10K, but I'm just... Uh, I, this guy was going to be like the superstar. Now we're four years out of Oregon and he's run one Diamond League race ever at the pre-3K and he got 15th place. So I don't think that's what we were expecting from Ed Cheserek. And he's in a very difficult spot because he's screwed not being able to represent any country. I guess he's going to have to... There was some talk this year that he was going to do Kenya. I saw recently that people were hoping now maybe he can get the U.S. by next year. I doubt that's the case, but like that's very unfortunate. But from a running perspective, yeah, I, I kind of see what Weldon's saying and, and why he wanted to talk about this, you know. But I, I had the same thoughts without doing the research. Then you see the times; they're okay. He's winning Houston. He just hasn't showed up in the Diamond League, and I think it's sort of unfortunate. He's basically missed three of the four outdoor seasons as a pro. I mean, two to injury and then one to COVID. So I know he's running, but he's running domestic meets. Who cares? So I think I wouldn't write him off. He's only 26. Moving forward, though, next year he either – and even if he was running fast, like what country is he going to do for? If he becomes an American, I think his motivation is going to go way up because he'll be instantly at the top of the U.S. or you know pretty much close to it. So – I mean, do you think you think he's going to be kicking out with Lamont and Chalimo? I think those guys are still a cut above him right now. Yes, I think he would be competitive with them, and um, you know we'll, we'll see. I guess in Kenya they don't have that many good five thousand meter runners either, so he, he he could do it for either one. But yeah, I, I was kind of joking, like thinking to myself as I was driving into work today, like yeah, he's done nothing. I go hopefully. At least, you know, Skechers used him and said he had an end, he had a 5,000 road record and some advertising in New York. I would love to know if any agents know, like, was he offered big money coming out of college by Nike? You think that they would have, did Skechers just pay a ton for this guy or were the offers not that high because he wasn't a U.S. citizen? You would think that the Oregon Golden Boy would have significant offers. Uh, I was kind of thinking, like, would he have been better if he was in a group with more structure, maybe with like a Jerry Schumacher? But I mean, it's just, I guess if you're not, if, it's hard to run, not run well if you're not healthy. Do you think he was offered a big Nike contract? I mean, I don't know for sure, but my answer would be no. If you're offered a big Nike contract coming out of Oregon, I think you're going to take it. Even like, what's unless Sketches is like some ridiculous thing, but like, a, a, I think that makes more sense. Why would why would he turn down a huge Nike contract? Because if you get even more money from another country with no with no reductions, another company. That's interesting, but. The history of Skechers, now they did sign Meb, but they signed Meb when Nike didn't offer him a lot of money. So the history of Skechers isn't we're outpaying for the top stars. It's we're paying for people who maybe aren't getting a top dollar elsewhere. Now, we have no, I have no insider knowledge if that's what's happened here, but that's what I would sort of assume they did that with Kara Goucha too. When she, well, but I would just, I would love to know the inside, the backstory here, because to me, honestly, Nike owed him an obligation to pay him a ton of money. Nike's done more to ruin college track and field in terms of making, of, of paying runners to go pro early, and getting them to go pro. And I feel like with the Oregon runners, they don't necessarily want them to go pro early, so they lowball, they lowball this guy, maybe take advantage of the fact that he's not an American. And sketches. I don't know this. I'm just speculating. I would love to know the story there. Can you imagine if? Chazarek had been an American, how much money he would have gotten from Nike? A lot. He would have been the best. I mean, he would have been the best American distance project, distance prospect ever coming out of college. Well, maybe they would have distance. paid him to go pro probably after his sophomore year or you know, even the freshman year. He wouldn't have lasted four years. He would have never been a legend like he was in the college ranks. Anyways, moving on to more recent results, let's turn to some women's results that, that caught my eye. In the U.S., uh, I think it was actually last night, Tuesday night, Hook and Isaiah Elite had an intra-squad meet. Kellen Taylor, 
3106. Not bad, right? 3107. But very good. She had a male pacer. Ben Bruce paced them. And then Stephanie Bruce, 3134 behind her. And Lauren Parquette, 3153. 3107's really good for Kellen Taylor. I mean, that puts a... The mark won't count because there's a male pacer. But that would be number seven all-time on the US all-time list ahead of Amy Cragg. I mean, it's, it's a real strong showing for her and bodes well for her chances of making that 10K team next year. But I really wanted to bring this up, A, because I know John doesn't like to bring up women's running. I'm, I'm the women's running expert. This is a, Where is this just a joke, from? John, but sometimes I, I'm, very, I'm very cognizant of, of... Jokes should be grounded in reality. It's some sort of reality, though. I just don't understand how you can say I'm not a supporter of women's running. Okay, not true, not true. But I, I really wanted to bring it up because I want to do Rojo's rant here. NAZ Elite, and we love you guys. I'm wearing my Hoka Carbon X's right now. I wear them around town. I, I work out on them. I love them. Um, but they're hyping up that somebody named Nick Hogger, who I've never heard of, I think he's like a 1356 guy, he's run an American record of 4856 for 10 miles. And I'm like, that can't even be, like, Ryan Hall's half marathon pace has to be way faster than that. And then I find out they're claiming it's an American record for 10 miles on the track, which isn't really even true either. So, I, 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 John, can, can you help me out here? I mean, I'm, I'm looking on the message board. Someone has pointed out that like 40 years ago, Bill Rogers ran or somebody, Dick Beardsley or somebody ran way faster. Yeah, Robert, I'm going to offer my congratulations, but mainly because this is the most contrived sort of record achievement i've seen i think i've that i've seen during covid maybe the treadmill records are up there as well uh though they're actually better than they were before yeah so it's a usa harvey management which is you know harvey kofleski good guy in the sport the tweet is uh congratulating nick hager on setting the usa best for 10 miles on the track so a it's slower than the road record b it's Slower than what Bill Rogers came through when he ran his one mile, his one hour American record. But that split apparently was not ratified. So it's faster. What the re- the record, quote unquote, that it broke was Dick Beardsley ran 49.05 back in 1982. <laughs> but I mean, no one but runs this, 10 miles. John, it's just, I mean, come so. on. I mean, not only that, look, look at this. It's slower. It's way slower. First of all, I, I was wrong. Jeff Galloway on the track, according to ours, in 1973, ran 47.49, which is like a minute faster. Bill Rogers would have run 46.35 or may have run 46.35. I mean, way faster. And not only that, do you guys realize what pace this is? This is like 454 a mile. This is like 64 half-minute marathon pace. Like, the, shit, Weldon could probably could, – Weldon could have run faster than this during his day-to-day. So – Anyways, I just was. Yeah, I, we don't mean to you know crap all over a runner here, but I do think I do find contrived like records amusing, and this is one of the more contrived ones I've seen. Okay, guys, let's move on to another race. But this one, this one is dear to my heart for a number of reasons, but it ended up not being allowed to count. In New Zealand, a two-time Olympian by the name of Robbie Johnston, pretty good name there, right, John? I mean, almost perfection on that name. Yeah, just take the T out. Uh, he's almost He gone. ran at the Athletics New Zealand Cross Country Challenge. Now, this was supposed to be the New Zealand National Championships, but 
they have a travel ban between parts of New Zealand because they're so crazy on, or cra- they're so strict about COVID. So not everyone can get there. I think if you're from Auckland, you couldn't come or something like that. So it just ended up being a regular meet. And Robbie, who's a Masters now, won the Masters, the 50-plus division, handily. But then he was DQ'd after the race for spitting. What do you think of this, John? I mean, if I, if there are DQs for spitting, I think I would have been DQ'd from every race I ever ran in college. But during the age of COVID, I... They probably want to be hypervigilant. Like you said, they're not even letting other people from the same country run this race. So if that was like well publicized beforehand that, hey, you can't spit. I don't know. I I still think it's a pretty tame way to DQ someone. And, you know, especially if he was the top finisher, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not happy about it, but. They had a rule they enforced Well, John, that's the problem. One of these rules, though, I'm going to read to you the rules that were I think in the manual for the athletes, it's not just spitting that gets did you DQ'd. It says the spitting may get you DQ'd, but only if you spit in an offensive manner. So here's the actual quote: While racing, please avoid spitting or discharging mucus from your no- nose in view of others or close to competitors. Anyone deemed to be spitting in an offensive manner could be disqualified. Now Robbie has emailed the show. And gave me a clip to where he showed up. He, the Australia, even the, the Kiwi media was asking if this was a little bit overdone. Robbie says he does not remember spitting during the race. He said he did see other competitors spitting at the start line. He says it was a very windy day. So he, and he spit that he did it, thought would be kind of, he thought that was good for less COVID stuff. And he kind of thought it was a joke when they told him he'd been DQ'd, but he was more upset that he was the only competitor person DQ'd in the whole day. So he claimed he doesn't remember spitting, and he certainly didn't spit in an offensive manner. But um, he's gotten the heave Okay, we're making a, a bunch of do about nothing, but the rule would be fine. Just say no spitting. I mean, if you're super concerned about COVID, which clearly New Zealand is, just say no spitting. Why do you need to then add some, like, addendum in an offensive matter? Because that makes it sound like he did something wrong or he's a bad person. Just say no spitting. Anyone spits DQ. Like, I wouldn't have a problem with it then. But, like, now in an offensive manner, no one can even cite when he did an offensive spit. It's like we have to, like, uh, yeah, like I don't know, virtue signal the spitting now. Like, put a put a evil connotation to it. Like, just how about no spitting? It's just a sort of factual thing. You spit or you don't spit. Talking a lot of sense there, Weldon. To be honest, I brought this up because even though John doesn't like us talking about COVID, we do have to have our weekly COVID segment. No, we don't. I'm going to argue this point, and listeners, feel free to chime in. We don't need a weekly COVID John, segment. John, last week, well, let me speak, let me speak. Last week, we had a segment on the show where we shared our email of the week, and it was from a person who told Weldon I to stick to our lane. We don't know how to even pronounce micro, microbial. So he loves the podcast, but please don't talk COVID. And then I've got an update. First of all, please report. I've convinced after reading his email, he has signed up for VIP membership. So this person is a supporter of the podcast and I've won him over. Clearly he's intelligent. But I was thinking about it the last week and I said, you know what? We should have a COVID segment every week on purpose. And I have to disagree. I'm going to defend myself here. David, uh, Jonathan, have you heard of David Epstein? Does that name ring a bell? Very yes. famous author, friend of Let's Run.com. He's written Sports Gene. And, and his Range, most, his new book, Range, which I'm listening to right now, actually. Yes, his new, his most recent book is Range. 
about how generalists, so it's, you don't want to specialize. It's better to be a generalist to play a bunch of sports when you're a kid, but he also applies this to, 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 to the world. And one of the key, key parts of this book, and I'm going to link to an Atlantic article, which has an entire chapter. You can read it for free. The entire point of this, the key point of this book and this thing is specialists are very, very bad at making forecasts. They get in their troves and they're terrible. And the generalists, the people who have a curiosity for the world, people like yours truly, who read lots of books, are much better at making predictions and much better than the specialists who make disastrous complications. That was a lie. Robert does not read lots of books right there. But continue, continue on. I don't read, read lots, lots of, of news books. articles and websites, but go ahead. Continue I read on. I'm one of the few Americans that subscribes to three newspapers daily. Well, not daily. One of them is a weekly. Um, so I, I, I'm saying this somewhat seriously. You know, I could read from this, but I'll, I'll, I think we should just link to it in the show notes. Robert, this is a very contrived reading of the book range in order to justify you chiming in as a COVID expert in an area where you have no expertise. That's all this is, and I won't stand for it. Maybe we should have David Epstein on the show. He would be a great guest, actually. I thought you were going to say David Epstein wrote you saying he wanted to hear your COVID talk. I thought you had some email about COVID. I thought he was going to wrap it up with like the bada-boom. But no, no email from David Epstein or anything? No, but I, I can email David this week and ask him if my predictions might be better than epidemiologist predictions. To me, it, it's pretty clear, John. Robert, how did you bring up the range thing? That's really weird because I swear to you, I'm listening to that book on tape right now. Are you as well? Please tell no, me. No, it just hit me that I, 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 I'm aware of this fact that scientists have said that the specialists are very bad because they get everything reinforces and they're not willing to look at alternative viewpoints. I'm willing to look at alternative viewpoints. Certain things, my views in COVID have, have progressed as, as time had moved on. One thing I was going to ask about New Zealand was, do you guys think this is overkill? These rules, I mean, there's no, there's no COVID at all in New Zealand, yet they're not, they're blocking inner travel. They're blocking spinning at races. Do you think it's overkill? And I know some people think I'm a COVID denier. No, I actually don't think this is overkill. This is what I thought all along about COVID. If you do a lockdown, it has to be absolute like China. It has to be absolute like New Zealand. Otherwise, it doesn't do any good. The problem, though, is, and, and, and you see this from the Swedish expert who's now been hired by the WHO, he's one of the top people in the WHO now in terms of COVID, is when you open, the, the problem is after the lockdown, now what? New Zealand has to keep its borders closed forever or until there's a vaccine because if they open it back up to international travel. You say forever? Yeah, until COVID's gone. Until it's gone. They're they now North Korea? Well, if, until it comes back because otherwise it's just going to spread like it did in New York and, and et cetera. It's pretty clear to me, and I think a lot of these experts are operating on the thing of you need 70 to 88 to 80 percent HIT. What is that? that stands for? Um, for the herd immunity threshold, infection rate to get that. Whereas I think the biggest thing is the belief. It's not certain that if you really, it's more about 25 or 30 because of T cell immunity. So you're not going to get totally rid of it. But we've seen this in a number of places. You get the big spike to about 25, 30% of the population, 20 to 30%, and then it comes way down. You still have it, but your R is way less than one, and you don't have very minor cases in, in New York, Connecticut, et cetera. It looks like it's going that way in the South. People are saying the Midwest is spiking. Yes, the Midwest is spiking because it hasn't come up. We saw this actually in Maryland where we never we really had No, we don't know. We're not going into Maryland. We're not going to every okay. state. We've had enough, but I think this is important looking forward to the Olympics. New Zealand, if you haven't had COVID, what level are you willing to have? New Zealand hasn't. There will be no Olympics next year in New Zealand. They couldn't bring people in. Japan has had very low COVID. Now, some people want to say it's 
measures they take, the masking, this other stuff. There's a whole other theory out there that it's exposure to other coronaviruses, this other stuff. But if a place like Japan hasn't have COVID, are they going to be open to outsiders coming in, fans coming in? It's something to think about down the road. I think for sports, you know, like in the South now, people are opening up. They're having sports. We're having college football. John, Austin P played in college football this week. I think that means I win. The I mighty said, Austin P. I said there would be college football this year. I think I win. There's going to be college football. It, it's going to happen. I think at this point, I've accepted the SEC, Big Twelve, and ACC are plowing through, and there's going to be pro football in eight days from now, which I actually am looking forward to. But can we talk? We haven't talked about the greatest track and field performance of the weekend, and we're you know almost 45 minutes into the show now at the Drake Blue Oval Showcase. Guys, it's time to talk some shot put. Ryan Krauser, the greatest, one of the greatest shot put series ever. So this is just the second time where all six attempts are over 22 meters. Krauser's the only person who's throwing throwing 22 meters this year. If you're throwing over 22, that's like really good for the very, very best of the shot uh, in the world. Just if you're not a big shot put fan, like 22 is an elite, elite mark. All six of his throws are over 22 meters. And this is the first time in history where all six throws of his, a series were over 73 feet, which is 22-25. So Krauser, you know, just an incredible performance out there at Drake. Um, he didn't, he, he was a little disappointed because he's been going after this world record of Randy Barnes, uh, which stands at 23-12. He didn't quite get there. Uh, he got 22-72 as his best throw, but he was being consistently in the 22, you know, well into the 22 meter range. And it actually... The, the only other series that really compares to this, I'd never heard of this series. It's pretty crazy. Back in 1987, Alessandro Andre of Italy, he broke the world record on three consecutive throws. 2272, then 2284, then 2291. Now, he's been linked to doping. That's one of the reasons why I think people think that Krause's PR of 2291 is the clean world record, which Joe Kovac shares. But this series told me two things. One... I think this world record is coming. Like, Krause is going to fly to Europe. He's going to try to chase it. Being, I know he's still got a ways to go, you know, from 2291 earlier this year to 2312, but so consistent. I think if he just gets what one throw that pops, he's going to get it. The other thing is he's thrown past the world record in practice. So if, if the stars align and he's basically like he knows he's in world record shape, he's going to go to Europe, get some competition opportunities. That could be the next world record we see fall in track and field. Okay, a couple of things. One, did you know his PR was at the American Track League meet earlier this year? I don't even really – like what, what other events were at that meet? The ATL was pretty big a couple of years ago, and Paul Doyle puts those on, but you know they're, they're trying the team thing with those. So I guess that's what he's calling his meets this year. But I wasn't really that familiar with like what was going on in those meets. I knew they were having shot puts and stuff, but I had no idea he threw 2291. Or maybe I missed it. I did know that because Paul sent me the video and I tweeted it out to the world. And it just kind of took off. It was like a Friday night or something. But yeah, t- he's tied for number three all time. What other stuff did they have in that meet? Uh, I think they had a few sprint races, a few field events. It wasn't, I mean, that was easily the you know most notable performance to come out from it. But I think they had a couple of smaller things as well. John, it's good to hear he's broken the world record in practice. Well, I don't know. Distance runners may not like that. The concept that you can do better in practice than a race. But he's still 
0.22 meters off of the world record, which is eight inches. Eight inches is decent amount. Seems like it's not for sure that he's going to do it. But when you tell me he's done it in practice, it gives me confidence or hope at least. I just hope that he does it. If he does it, he actually does it at a Diamond League meet where he can have it on like real videotape. I don't want it to be some on web thing where there's three people watching. But congratulations to him. But can we give a, ma- a major shout out to Drake, meet director Blake Bolden, former Ivy League coaching colleague of mine, and also presenting sponsor MediaCom. I mean, they easily could have just not put on this meet, but again, they value elite sport and, and they did a great job. And they also had the the, the USATF Road Mile Championships were held. Part, it was actually track. Was it track, John? Uh, it was. It, they call it the road champs officially, but it was a road race that ended on the track. They started outside the stadium. They had the US, you know, mile champs where Sam Preco won $3,000 and 358.3 over Kobe Alexander and Joe Klecker and Emily Lapari, um won the women's mile and actually in a record time of 429.3 over Marissa Howard and Megan Manzi. So cool to, it's cool to see them putting on US championships, even though. USATF decided not to put on the track championships. Well, that was that was the first USATF championship, I believe, that was contested in the age of COVID. Was the one mile road? Yeah, yeah, since March. No, I, I I totally agree with you, Robert. Like Blake Bolden and all the Drake folks, thumbs up for making this happen. And you know, you had some Lena Irby was in the two hundred. She won that. She's you know she's obviously a, a star. Sandy Morris in the pole vault. Josephus Lyles in the two hundred. I mean. You had some decent decent quality athletes out there at Drake, so I'm impressed by that. But I just think all of the meet directors in the U.S. are going to give a lot of kudos to them. You know, the guys out at Portland Track for putting on the big friendly series, Dave Milner down in Tennessee with the Music City Distance Carnival, South Carolina Track Fest. Like, everyone who's worked to put these meets on and tried to do them in a safe manner, you know, with all the, the testing beforehand, I just applaud them because it's very easy, especially with... There's not a ton of sponsorship money in this sport. Uh, it's hard to get these meets on as it is, even in a normal year. So for them to pull it off, Jesse Williams out there, Sunset Tour, him as well. Like I'm sure I'm missing some people, but I just want to give my you know tip my hat to all those guys for making sure we have a season and for giving these athletes a competition. See, there you have it. You said you want to give a tip of your hat to all these guys. I'm sure a lot of gals were involved as well, John. And what about our Europeans? The, the Europeans and Asian listeners, they're doing a lot of meets in Europe. What? A lot of national championships, so kudos to anyone. Yeah, Europe, we have Diamond Leagues. I mean, those ones, for sure, I, anyone, everyone over there I'm impressed by as well. But I'm just thinking, you know, domestically, for the athletes who can't travel out of the country, we do have, you know, we're, fo- we're a U.S.-focused show. That's what, But, yeah, everyone in the sport, who's it's been a tough year, and I'm impressed by everyone who's made sure that we have events to, to watch and cheer on and for the athletes to compete in. All right, before we get to the Peter Walsh interview, we've got – Diamond League. You've been wanting it, John. You've been missing the Diamond League. It's back this weekend. I think it's Friday? Friday afternoon, U.S. Eastern What do we have to look forward to? From Brussels. So we've got three world record attempts uh, for the men's and women's one-hour run and then the women's 1,000. So not totally sure how this broadcast is going to work. It kind of seems like the way the broadcast is set up, the last hour is just going to be the one-hour run men attempt, which is Mo Farah and Bashir Abdi are the, the headliners for that. 
I don't know if that's going to be how exciting that thing's going to be. I mean, I guess you kind of think of it as like it's a half marathon and but it's on the track. I don't know. I I haven't. I, I didn't watch the whole when Nord, Sandre Moen did it earlier in Norway. I wasn't really like. I was like, oh, I'm not going to watch this whole thing. It's just not that interesting. But I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully, it's exciting. John, you're sounding like a sprint fan when they when the, when the ten thousand starts. It's not that much different than a half marathon. I guess it's kind of a race against the clock, but. It is interesting, right? It's like, what, 50 laps, 60 laps? It's a ton. On the track, it seems kind of boring. But if they had a big half marathon field, I'd kind of be into it. But I also would tell you nothing would happen the first 45 minutes. So unless it's his own broadcast mm-hmm. and there's other stuff to talk about, like just don't show a track meet of people running laps for an hour. Well, it will be interesting, right? Because the, the, the world record is Holly Gabbard Celeste's, and it's like 59 minutes low equivalent for the half marathon. But Farrah will not be allowed to wear the cheater shoes, the Vaporflies, as people call them. Um, so, you know, I mean, he's got to be in pretty good shape to do that. And I would assume that he would get it, but I wouldn't put it at a hundred percent, but apparently the women's record, right? John is much softer and who, who's in the women's race, the women's record. So this is pretty awesome. You've got the world record holder in the mile, Safan Hassan and the world record holder in the marathon, Bridget Cosguy. And they're going after this one hour run world record. Yeah, it's it's eighteen thousand five hundred and seventeen meters by Deary Tunay in two thousand eight. So that was just after she won the Boston Marathon. But that's only sixty eight twenty two half marathon pace. So I kind of expect Cosguy to crush this record. Like Hassan didn't look great in Monaco, dropped out with a K to go in the five K. But Bridget Cosguy in the last year she's run sixty four twenty eight at the Great North Run, two fourteen in the marathon at Chicago, and then earlier this year sixty four forty nine at RIK half would have been the world record, but she actually lost that race too. Do you guys remember women's mar- half marathon world record happened in f- earlier this year in February? Do you remember the name of the woman who did it? Joan Nelly? No. Ababel Yashana of Ethiopia. I don't totally blame you. She was not that well known beforehand, but there was a world record in the half marathon for the women earlier this year in case everyone forgot. So I expect Cosguy will probably, assuming Cosguy's in anywhere close to decent shape, she should smash that record. So I, I think it'll be interesting because whether Farrah gets it, it's going to be a race against the clock. And the women's race, you expect them to get it. Because, I mean, even if you add two minutes to, to Cosguy's time because of the shoes, she's still well under the old record. So, But it, it could be a race between her and Hassan. I mean, do we know that Cosguy's even in shape? Like, what has she been doing? So... No, she hasn't raced since R.A.K. Are we underselling this woman's race? I mean, this was, you could say it's sort of like hidden sexism. No, I think it should be the race that's featured on TV. I agree with you, Weldon. Like Safan Hassan versus Bridget Coates. This guy, a guy, excuse me. Forget about Hassan being the mile record order, which is nuts. This is like the top distance track runner in the world versus racing the world record holder in the marathon. Think of this as men. We, would we be playing this up a lot more? We a guy versus Kipchoge at a mile on the track. We'd be into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard about this Mo Farah thing for a couple months because it's far, and it shows that, you know, name he has in England where a lot of the athletics press comes out of. But I had no idea until today that it was Hassan versus Coast Guy. So I think this is a tremendous race, and this is the one we should be hyping up. I think it's interesting, like, I, I guess I'm kind of like John. I sort of discounted about, a bit. If you've been following, you're like, well, Hassan probably isn't that fit. But... To give her credit, she ran what, like how far was that race? She just ran with the leaders until like 600 to go and dropped out. 
a thousand ago. But she's, she's and she's going to be better shape now. It's been like you know two or three weeks. I think she's gradually gaining fitness. So, and I don't so. think you have to be in fourteen twenty shape necessarily to run a mile an hour run that well. So. I wouldn't rule her out completely. Another interesting thing is Coast Guy can't wear the vapor flies on the track anymore, so that won't count. So that's good. They're all being spikes, which might favor Hassan. I think this is going to be a great one. It's going to be more interesting to me than the men's run. I mean, the men's run is the question of whether Farah can actually get the time. That's the only doubt. This one is like, who's going to win? Don't discount Bashir Abdi, his training partner from Belgium. His PR of 204.49 from Tokyo earlier this year is actually faster than Mo Farah's 205.11. So I, I would guess, you know, I think he could, Farah might not win the race. I think it's great that Weldon is hyping up the women's race. I didn't even know about it until the show started. So yes, that should be the one that's hyped. That should be the one we just didn't know about. It. I don't think it's necessarily a sex thing. I think it's just that Farah hasn't been in the, in the Western press and promoting this for months or weeks on end. Um, but I, and then we got Faith Kipiagan going for the thousand record. I mean, she just missed it by a couple hundredths of a second, I think, what, 0.17 a few weeks ago. So it would be cool to me if they ran the thousand while this one of these one hour runs was going. Like, could you just time it so right when they came by, you you know, when they're, they're about to finish a lap, you start her so she doesn't lap anybody? I, I think well, the work. problem is there's a bunch, there's like half a dozen or a dozen entrants in this race. So they're going to be all around the track. Because you need something like to entertain yourself during this. So put the thousand. You know, right, right during this, and then you fire off the thousand, and then you fire off the, the the mile start, and maybe they should have Joe Kovacs throwing the shot put in the middle, trying to get the world record. I mean, Krauser, excuse me. So, something to watch. Speaking of world records, Conceslos Caputo, who talked big before Monaco but wasn't allowed to compete because of COVID, still says he's in world record shape, and is I think headed over to Europe to, to prove it. Right? Yeah. All right. This is what we need. Here's my proposal. We need a world record meet. We need a men's steeple with Kiprudo. We need a men's 10,000 with Cheptegei. And we need uh, a men's 400 hurdles with Carsten Warholm. And we need a shot put with Ryan Krauser. Get them all together. I don't Just those four events. That's fine. Get them all together in the same track and have them all go for the world record. I haven't, I haven't looked at Rome Diamond League or Doha or whatever. But those events all need to be in the same meet. We call it the world record meet. We see how who gets what. I think it might be needing to be a little bit cold though for the to have the world record in the ten thousand and to have the world record in the four hundred hurdles wouldn't be ideal because you're going to need like fifty degree temperature. Dude, he, the, what have you watched? Have you paid no attention to Warholm over the last three years? He's from Norway. He runs fast no matter what. He just ran forty six ninety two in Stockholm. Not a fast track at all. He doesn't need good weather. That's an insult. That's an insult to Warholm. Other things to look forward to, John Prague half marathon this weekend. Is this the first big half marathon? Yeah, so you said, like, Robert, why, you know, you'd be more excited if we just had a bunch of these guys in a in a half marathon. Well, we kind of have that this weekend. Is To my knowledge, this is, like, really the, the highest quality road race we'll have seen so far um, since COVID. You have, you know, the women, the women have been targeting, they're going to be targeting a women's only world record. So you've got... Perez Jepchirchir, Sam Barry Teferi, both in the 105 PRs. Edith Chalimo as well. They've all run 105. And the world record for women's only race is 106.11. So that's what they're going after. On the men's side, Stephen Kiprop, 58.42 PB. Kibberwatt Candy, who won RAK half, 58.58 58 earlier this year. 
and you know a bunch of other guys who've run under 60 minutes you know it's it's a lot of fast guys running a road running a real road race you know which is exciting to me it was it was going to be more loaded right and that's not good dead i pulled out with the knee injury yeah you're supposed to have um Joan Melly, Weldon's favorite runner. Uh, she was the top seed at 105.04, but she had a foot injury and then Netsanet to get Gudetta, who holds the women's only world record of 106.11 from the world half champs two years ago. She also had the scratch due to injury. I'm glad Joan Melly's actually a good runner. I just kind of threw out, I'm like, wait, who's some obscure half marathoner? No, it's it's not a bad guess. One hundred five, you know, sixty five hundred four. It's not that far off the. Well, it's not that far off the old world record. Um, the new one's a bit faster than that. Well, should be a fun weekend. I think we should get to the Peter Walsh interview next. Now, warning: people don't like to be triggered in this day and age. The interview was fantastic. We love doing it, but he probably will offend our visitors both on the left and the right. Peter is a free thinker. He does not think, because I think A, I need to think B, C, and D as well. So he, in the following interview, we're warning you, if you don't like to be triggered, if you only like to silo yourself around the same thoughts that you always have, then don't listen to it. Because in this following interview, he's going to both express support for the police as well as disdain for Donald Trump. So equal opportunity offender, folks. Get ready for it. Fantastic interview with one of the Coogan's tri-owners, Peter Walsh. All right, everybody, we're now joined by Peter Walsh. He was or is the owner of Coogan's, one of the most famous bars slash running bars in America that sadly is has closed for good after 35 years in New York City, right next to the Armory. Coogan's and Peter are now being featured in a multi-million dollar ad campaign by Facebook. That's, it's everywhere. It's been on the Today Show, NBA Playoffs. I think I saw some iSpot TV thing saying they've already spent $10 million publicizing this thing. I think Peter is the most famous runner in America right now because the ad features him running down the street at night in New York. It's a very touching ad. We'll have it in the show notes if you haven't seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. Alan Webb actually has a cameo in the ad. If you're not familiar with Coogan's, we'll link to the story Jonathan Galt did on it in letsrun.com, but it's closing, got a huge write-up in the New York Times as well. I thought this quote was great to sort of say what Coogan's was. And it said, Coogan's was the promise of New York incarnate, multi-ethnic, friendly, welcoming, smart. The premise of the business was the opposite of social distancing. COVID-19 ended Coogan's forever, I think. But uh, Peter, thanks for joining us to talk about Coogan's and the ad and for having such a just a wonderful bar throughout the years. I think the running community, I was only a New Yorker for a year, but it was a wonderful establishment. Sad to see it go. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that long-winded introduction I gave you, but thanks for joining us. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, it, it feels great. We felt very special because of the running uh, essence of the bar. We believed in running, um, and, and we were initiated by runners in, in, into what running is. You know, as a child or growing up, I didn't know anything about running until I was 50, really. I started running marathons when I was 50. Uh, my idea of an athlete when I was growing up was you drank a quart of beer, got up and you hit a home run. And uh, that was that, that to me was an athlete. When I saw guys running, I would say, wow, they got to do that. Um, because when we were kids, we were all runners in a sense. I mean, we didn't have any coaches or, or 
manage. We had no no structured sports when I was a kid. You know, you went down into the streets and you played until, you know, the dinner bell went off. So if we played, say, baseball, we we got more hits than these kids today because these organized leagues, you know, we just got up at bat. We played with five kids against five kids. Uh, we didn't care, but we just kept on playing and playing and playing. And it, and we didn't have any grownups. There were no grownups around. So we learned social skills about how to deal with each other. And I think that's what I brought into the bar business. Um, uh, the social skills that we, I was on my own. So uh, when you run a bar, it's it's the same thing. It's um, it's the disorganized or the I'm going to organize bar is the most fun. And boy, am I unorganized. Yeah, let's talk about the bar first and then we can later talk about the running aspect and the Facebook ad. But we were talking offline right before we started. I mean, Coogan's was started in 1985. And as you were saying, Washington Heights then was one of the most unsafe areas in New York City, in America, maybe, maybe the world. Like, what prompted you guys to start a bar there? Like, what made you think, like, oh, this is what we're going to have a bar slash restaurant and this is going to be successful? Well, and I think I said this to Jonathan Galt that I, uh, there was no competition. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was nobody else was going to do this. And I, you look around and you say, well, no competition. We're going to be the only place. And you had a hospital with about 15,000 people on the corner, you know, Columbia Presbyterian or a New York Presbyterian hospital, but you had Columbia University uh, medical students. So you had something that was there. Now, if you want to run a bar, the first thing you want to get is a lunch business. Because when you get the lunch business, and that's hard, you, you can't you can't create it. It's either there or it's not. When you have the lunch, it pays the bills. And then nighttime is all the gravy. Um, so we looked at it. And we said, yeah, it's dangerous. But we were brought up in New York. Uh, we're New, we were New York kids. Uh, and New York didn't scare us. And uh, we, I was brought up in a very multi- um, cultural neighborhood, you know, with blacks and Spanish and Puerto Ricans. And, and, you know, I did my singing with black kids. I did my uh, stickball with Puerto Rican kids. I boxed with Irish kids. You know, we were brought up that way. And a lot of people, I think, have fear of uh, each other. You know, I think whites fear blacks. I think blacks have a disdain for whites. And I never, I didn't have that. You know, I, I, I didn't have that type of uh, upbringing. And it it, it wasn't on my table, you know, so we were able to go to a dangerous neighborhood and just fit in and we became safe. And safety is the uh, the premise of everything we do in our lives. Whatever you guys do in your lives, whatever your listeners do in their lives, the first thing is safety. If you have safety, as the ad says, you have safety, you can have joy. If you have safety and you have joy, you can have an intellectual experience on the planet. So that's how we went in there. And we were integrated right away. We were black, uh, Puerto Rican, Dominican, um, all the races and creeds. And people would come into the bar from downtown, say, visiting the hospital or, or kids who just got accepted to Columbia. And they would walk in and you could see in their eyes like they were very uncomfortable. And I used to love to see that look on people because then I would like hug them into the place and they would become part of this experience. Yeah, Coogan seemed to represent you know, the best of New York, the best of America, sort of the melting pot ideal that I think we fall short of sometimes. So 
thank you for creating that. And I mean, you, you had a real attachment with the neighborhood. Uh, I guess yeah. two years ago, you guys almost closed for the first time. Uh, Hamilton star creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda helped kind of spear, oh, yeah. spear charge a campaign to save you guys. I guess for the record, like this is it. You're permanently closed, right? You were telling me that yesterday, but I just want you to get that out there. There's no way you can come back. It was shut down, but yeah. And it's like, you know, Lynn, you know, when you see him on all these award shows and all the great stuff, I mean, Hamilton, he's probably the most recognizable name right now. I, you know, it's funny. Lady Gaga's father used to come into place. And I said, well, and I and, and my wife taught Lady Gaga uh, in high school. But I used to say, here's Lady Gaga. And I go, and here's Lin-Manuel, two of the most famous uh, faces, the fam- most famous male and the most famous female in America. And we have a relationship with them uh, that was very positive. Uh, Lynn, we did his birthday parties when he was a kid. And I- I'll tell you this. He is as nice as he looks. That's not an act. It is not an act when you say, oh, I wonder what he's like when he- when he's off the screen. He's the- one of the nicest young people you ever could uh, possibly meet. And uh, I'm very happy for his success. Uh, I remember him walking in the room one day and then uh, he dropped some cake on, on the floor. He was probably about 16. And I said, hey, Lynn, how you doing? What are you going to be? He goes, oh, I'm going to be uh, uh, a writer. I want to be an actor. I go, oh, you want to be an actor? Okay. Well, act like uh, you can pick up cake off the floor. And um, but that was my relationship. I you know, treat him like another little brat. And he turned into be, you know, an in- incredible person. But the neighborhood saved us. We were saved. And I think what became the story became so popular with people was here was a couple of, you know, my partners, Tess McDade and, and Dave Hunt and myself, you know, a couple of white people. And we were saved by Hispanic and black people, basically. That's what people saw. And that's why the story kind of took off a lot besides, you know, our, our running experience. It was the, the polarization in our country right now and in the past 20 years. It's disgusting. It's 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 dangerous. It's it's terrible. Um, why people are polarized like that, and you know people argue with each other rather than discuss. And we were a place to have a discussion. We had people in our bar from opposing views who were able to break bread and tell each other jokes and maybe have a drink. I mean, one night I'd be doing a party for uh, one political candidate. And the next night I would do the party for the guy who was running against them. And they were both friends of mine. And after the debates were over, they were both drinking with each other. That doesn't take place uh, in the American experience anymore. I mean, it's frightening what is going on. And I'm sorry, I I don't mean to be political. I know if there's some people out there who like Trump, I, I just think he's a very disgusting human being. I mean, it's he goes against everything I was brought up. I was brought up by people who came out of World War II. In the bars, I was in bars probably since I was eight years old, underneath the tables when my relatives were having baptisms and confirmations and weddings and wakes. I was brought up in that. But these guys came back from World War II. They're the ones who did everything for my generation to go to college. It wasn't about them. They had jobs like garbage men, firemen, you know, cops, uh, drove the trains and buses. They just wanted a house and a safe place to bring us up so we could go to college and get what they couldn't get. And these were good guys, and they did things for good reasons. They didn't do things because they're going to make another dollar or they're going to make another dollar fifty. 
They did things because they were good. And that's what America was to me. And that's what the America I was brought up. We did things for good reasons. And I don't see that going on with our leadership right now. And my relatives and the people who fought those wars, the Battle of the Bulge, Okinawa, I can name probably so many battles where my uncles uh, were on. They would be disgusted at what they see in the leadership of our country right now. Because we were good guys. We believed we were good guys. And the con- and the world believed that. When I traveled the world in the 60s, Americans, you know, even with the Vietnam War, you would have discussions with people about the war, what side they were on or whatever. It was just a, But Americans were, were valued. People loved uh, the, the concept. Of, everybody wanted to come to our country and, and experience the American experience. Now, when they look at it, we've turned in ourselves into a cartoon. We've turned ourselves into another country. We had this extreme wealthy and the extreme poor. People are building walls around their houses. We never had that in America before. You know, well-to-do neighborhoods hire their own police forces. That's disgusting. That's disgusting to me. That's like saying, we can afford to be safer than you. And so I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very uh, disheartened by what's been going on in our country. And Coogan's, we brought people together. You had to discuss- Listen, everybody came to Coogan's for different reasons, but we all drunk from the same glass. We all were drinking from the same glass. And, and, and that glass was the American experience. It was that we could move up in America, that we could be successful in some way, either artistically or business or, or just happy with ourselves who we are. I mean, look at our alliances. We, we've decimated alliances we had for generations. Uh, we've decimated our, out, uh, our outreach to the world. We've made ourselves typical. We've made ourselves, and Americans were never typical, even with all the race problems that are going on in our country. And it's very difficult for us to look at our, at our past leadership without the stain of slavery. You know, you, you have to look at people like Benjamin Franklin, and you have to look at the John Adams and and and, and this now. It's, it's a very difficult thing. But how do we bring people back to the table is what do we have in common? When people sat at my table and I had to get votes, uh, or how to split up the pie up in the neighborhood. I would talk about everybody's children because everybody loves their children. So we had something in common. You know, it's like a runner. If you're a good runner, you want fresh air. So you have to be for, for the, the climate. You have to be for the environment. If you're a good runner, you're an environmentalist right away and you started with your own body. Shoot, it's in the podcast area. You gave a lot of great advice for America and yeah. Everyone there it was pretty interesting. But like you said, I think the one thing that comes out is like Kuman, Coogan's was everybody drank from the same cup. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it before. But like when you guys were going to close the first time, like you said, on the surface, if we're just going to judge you guys, it's three white owners. They could be like, get these guys out of here. Instead, you welcomed everyone. They, You were part of the community and they saved you. And we need definitely more of that in America, for sure. I think everyone would agree. And offline, before we started, you were talking about the middle class, how you how you were saying there's the rich and the poor. And the middle class is essentially people with government jobs and good insurance. And I hadn't thought of it that way. But then you said, we don't need a middle class just for the sake of the middle class. You need a middle class for people, for the poor to something to aspire to. And then people keep aspiring. And then we're all in this common continuum. Yeah, It's not fair. There's people with different statuses, but like 
we can see we're all in the same pie, the same melting pot. Well, it's a reason for the ad you you're mentioning about why why how I mean why do they pick Coogan's? Why why am I running in this ad? And well, it's because Facebook, you know, has a lot of people who uh, dislike it for whatever reasons. I have no idea the, the specifics of it. And they're using us to make themselves look better. And I don't mind that. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy. Ego-wise, uh, Coogan's is very happy that we're getting national attention. And we're happy that we can do something for small businesses and nonprofits and not undernourished neighborhoods. But I understand, you know, Facebook, um, their positioning uh, in the world. Listen, I, I look at the thing. Oh, it's, it's an American company. Um, they're making a lot of money. They did the in revolutionized communications. We used Facebook for all advertising. So it worked for us. And when I hear about all the other things about Facebook, uh, the negative things that I'm just hearing them really for the first time, because I was never aware of them. And um, you can fix anything. I think, uh, you know, uh, Facebook will be nurtured, will nurture themselves. I think there are going to be laws that will uh, come in that would say, Okay, you know, let's have more people involved in competition or whatever. But uh, I, I look at it as uh, I'm honored that they're, they're giving money for a neighborhood that's undernourished. And I'm going to take the money and I'm going to uh, have fun giving it out. Listen, I'm not making money. I'm out of a job now. So and I'm, I'm not inheriting. I, I was never in a position to inherit. I, could, I would have been very good at inheriting money. But that possibility just passed me by. But I know I'd be dynamite at inheriting money. Boy, would I be good at that. But that's that. But giving money away, the position we are, because our ears were on the sidewalks and the streets of our neighborhood. We know that neighborhood. And we know when people fill out a form, we know who should get the money. We, we know them because they were our friends for 35 years. And we know what they did for the neighborhood. We know, you know, Washington Heights, that homicidal, crazy neighborhood had, and, and this didn't, and it happened overnight. It became a great neighborhood so fast. It was unbelievable how fast it became a great neighborhood. And it was because of good policing and running. We had the armory. That armory brought kids in off the streets to run. When we did our race, Salsa Blues and Shamrock's 5K run, that was to take the streets back from drug dealers. You know, that was our way of saying, these are our streets, get out of our way. And that was a statement. And who put the medals on all those kids who were African-American and Dominican and Puerto Rican, Hispanic, cops and firemen. So it was the bond people. It was the bond, the policemen, and a little kid would know he could trust maybe that 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 cop. And a league we formed with, well, other people formed Mr. Busick, whose uh, son was a murdered cop. He formed a baseball league, which was all Dominican and African-American. And out of that league, 45 of those kids became cops. So if you go to Washington Heights right now and you look at the police, they reflect the neighborhood. Boy, is that important. They can speak Spanish. They can speak English. And the cops who aren't Hispanic, who may be white, also have an appreciation of the culture that they're dealing with. You know, if you want to really, if you want to, we had so many people marry from Irish to Dominican in our bar. It's unbelievable. And, and I'm going to tell you this. 
Dominican woman walk better than white woman dance. I mean, if you watch a Dominican woman walking down the street, I'm going to tell you something. You just become enamored. You see the salsa merengue. You see a rhythm. You see a beauty. I mean, they just have this incredible. If I was going to open up a, like an Irish dance club, I would call it the club awkward because you couldn't use your hands and you would do like only awkward people would be allowed. But I, I mean, I was introduced to rhythms of salsa, merengue. And then, of course, we're next door to Harlem and I'm getting the blues at the same time, blues and gospel. It was, it's fun. It was, Mingling is fun. If you deal with one like iron, iron's an ore. But when you mix that ore and it becomes steel, you mix it with all the different elements. And that to me is the same thing as mixing races and religions. When you mix it, it only becomes stronger and more powerful in, a, in an absolutely new person or a new type of thing that we don't even know what it's going to appear, but it becomes stronger to me. Boy, I can talk. Pretty good. Maybe there's a future in you for politics. You ever thought about that? You know, my wife used to say that to me and I said, I don't know how anybody would put their family or themselves in a position and, and the ones who do choose it, that's why we have so many mediocre people in politics, because all the smart ones would never do that to their children and their families. They would never put them, you know, into the face of the media and make them victims of the media. Um, I love, I'm a political animal uh, and, and, and I love it. Uh, and, and I think we have the greatest uh, experiment democracy in the world. Um, I just hope we get more leaders out of your generation and the younger generation, I think, is getting a lot more active. Um, uh, I just hope they remember the history of this country and the history of the country with all the stains upon it, with all the mistakes we have made. It's still one of the most beautiful histories on the planet Earth. The American uh, experiment right from the American Revolution. You know, somebody was in a bar one time and um, he was English, actually. And he goes to me, and he goes, you know, Pete Hart. You Americans are all self-promoters. And I, and I said, that's the highest compliment you ever gave our country. That's who we are. We threw the king out. We threw your king out. And we all became royalty. We all became the kings. Every single person in this country is a king or a queen. And that's who we are. We're self-promoters. We invented advertising. We sold things that you didn't need and, and you bought them. And I said, but we also know what you want. And, and I said, that's the American experience. We are self-promoters, though we gave self-promoting to everybody. It's really interesting to hear you talk because, I mean, you say you don't want to be a politician, but I, the problem with politics, I don't want to go political here, is, but now you have to think a certain position. If you think a certain position on A, then you are supposed to think B, C, and D as well, whereas you clearly are sort of anti Trump clearly, but pro police, and most people now are afraid to be, to be both of those. You know, to be one and the other. You're either A and B. You can't be B and A, and it's really disturbing to me. You can't have three thought. And part of that is actually, I think, related to the internet because there's a magnification of like, oh my god, like some of these things. I was like, I can't believe Peter's right. going to say that. He's going to talk about Dominicans being better dancers than white people. Yeah, I don't give like, a shit. I mean, I'm 73 years old. You're going <laughs> to fire me? You're yeah. going to take my job away? I mean, right. I, I mean, I don't mind. You know, listen, there's no such thing as being almost honest. That's number one. You're, you're honest or you're not honest. And and, and that, that was part of our charm, I think, up in uh, Dominican Heights. We were, we're up there in a bar in Coogan's. We were honest. The, the drink we served you was an honest drink. And the conversation was an honest conversation. Um, I mean, and 
you know, I, and I enjoyed it. I mean, but I look at, listen, the social media is a refuge for cowards. I mean, when you look at some of the comments that, and I'm, I'm just getting used to looking at comments on things. And I said, wow, if these guys are ever inside, in front of my face. And they said a thing like that. I spanked them, you know? I mean, they, they'd be publicly spanked. It's a refuge for so many cowards. Because when you have people eyeball to eyeball, and this is a great thing about bars and restaurants and, and small businesses, with a newspaper, the real news is in small business, is in the neighborhood. That's the real news. You know, it's it's the girl next door that's a possibility for, for your future life, not the girl you look in a magazine or you see on a, a computer. It, it's the person... You know, we tell you what's what happened last night. I, I mean, I knew the news in Washington Heights every day. I knew if there was a shooting. I knew who was shot. I went to the wakes. I mean, I knew, you know, what what gang was. You just knew it all. And today, you, we're getting further away from that neighborly feeling, that the, the neighborhood newspaper. So if you went into, say, an Irish pub back in the 1800s, and I believe every bar and restaurant in the world has an Irishness inside them now because the Irish pub gave you the welcome. They welcomed you into their place. And, and there was an Irish welcome to it. And I think that type of thing has spread. But when you sat there, you found the price of what oats were and the pigs were. You found out whose son was ready to get married and whose daughter uh, uh, was, was a good-looking daughter, and who was down the, the road with, with the British uh, soldiers blocking the bridge. You found everything out, and it was a warm fire because you couldn't afford to have a fire uh, burning in your house uh, all, all those hours. You, you just didn't have the money. So you went to that pub, and you got warm, and you found out what was going on. And all of a sudden, a fiddle player would start fiddling, and some old guy would recite a poem. Well, that's what we wanted to do. And that, without knowing it unconsciously, we did in Coogan's. You could come in and you could be a poet and you could come in and you would find out what was going on in the neighborhood. And if there was a job opening up at the hospital, at the university, and if my son could maybe get into this other school, you found that in Coogan's. Uh, you, you would bring up a conversation with I had doctors talk to plumbers at the bar. And, it, and they were both as interesting as each other. I mean, one was the plumber of the body and one was the plumber of your, your, your toilet bowl. But they, they, they were both, both working on your plumbing in a sense. But they found something together. Um, and I love that. I love that we had that, uh, that exchange. And, and Coogan's, a lot of people got married out of it. A lot of people got jobs. And a lot of people joined clubs. And the running, what we did for running, was one of the most important things I felt. We got kids to run who were never, were never exposed to it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about the running aspect. I mean, when I think of Coogan's, I think of it as the running bar because you, I think I was, you know, I'd be coaching at Cornell or at the Milrose Games when you started having it. And then I would have a break and I'm like, where am I going to go? I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to Coogan's. You're right. There wasn't a lot around there to go else to go where. Yeah. You know, get a drink or something while there's a six, while they run 20 heats of the 200 or something. I wasn't coaching, but I'm curious, what percent of your business do you think was running related? Well, uh, well, very seasonal. Don't forget the indoor season uh, was 60 percent, 70 percent of our business during the indoor season. And and but runners always came in and um, even the outdoor because Vanny was, you know, Van Cortland Park was only like two and a half miles away, you know. So and then you had Icon in the river. 
you know, which is across from 125th Street. Uh, so, you know, we, New York City is an incredible running city and people never think of it. You know, they think Broadway, they think Wall Street. We probably have more running. Forget about Oregon. You know, they might be, what do they call it, Nike Town? Or, uh, uh, you know, they might be Nike. We, we're running world. I mean, we got it. Van, Van Cort, look at the history of Van Cortland Park. 130 years of running. The Armory, 105 years of indoor running. Icon, what was it before? Randall's Island, where Jesse Owens ran uh, to get into the Olympics. Uh, you have now out in Staten Island, you have Ocean Breeze, uh, one of the uh, up-to-date uh, indoor tracks. You have the New York City Marathon. You have the reservoir in Central Park to run around. And running in the streets of New York is a absolutely, when I started running marathons, running in the streets of New York, I would go down streets, I you know, I would never go down. It, it, you know, there's a safety in running for some reason. Because by the time the guy wants to rob you, you already ran past the street. <laughs> you know, so you could go down interesting streets sometimes. Um, but the the running, we we became running. Our whole back room was dedicated to running. We had all every Sports Illustrated magazine cover uh, ever done on running. We had the shirts from Alan Webb's. We had uh, uh, you, you name the runner. You know, they were inside that room. You know, Carl Lewis. I remember knocking down a bottle of us. Uh, uh, scotch with Carl Lewis one night, uh, sitting with him. Dwight, uh, Dwight Stones, um, telling me stories, uh, you know, about California and and the whole thing. Bubba Thorne. I mean, and then the real beauty, you, high school runners would come in and see someone they adored, and they could go right over to the table and talk to that person. It was amazing. That's what Drew Hunter said after he broke the high school mile record indoors. He was there celebrating and he just felt sort of in awe of all these athletes and they were all congratulating him because he was a big deal. Um, so that was really cool. And fun, fun fact, there have only been three sub four indoor miles by a high schooler in the U S Alan Webb drew Hunter twice. They all came at the armory and I believe all of them celebrated after those races at Coogan's. So pretty special. And, and, and a lot, and drew, I, I love cause he was a little bit shy so I wrapped my arms around him. And you know the first person I introduced him to? Eamon Coughlin. I mean, and I, I, I say, Eamon, this kid, and, I, and I, I tell him what he just did. And here's Eamon going, oh, Jesus, come over here. Come here, get, get over here. Come here, give me a, and he gives him a big hug. Come here, and he gives him a noogie on his head, and he wraps him up, and he brought him to his table. And then uh, who's Eamon? To, you know, he says, you know this man over here? He's an Olympian. You know, and he's introducing him to, uh, you know, uh, Centrowitz, Matt sitting at the table. And then, he, you know, his father's over there in the corner. And then Lino uh, Manzano. Uh, and, and here's Drew. And it was so much fun. And I, I did a thing on Milrose Night. I don't know if any of you guys, I think you were there one night. But when you walked in, especially high school runners, young runners, I would yell for science, you know, and say, ladies and gentlemen. And I would introduce, like, these new runners. And who was I introducing him to? The greatest track aficionados on the East Coast, plus some of the great legends of the sport. You know, I mean, Jim Ryan, yeah, I, mean, I, I remember Jim, he coming for brunch, and uh, you talk about being political, but I, I'm, I'm talking with Jim, and I loved him. He was a great guy. I mean, a great guy. And um, the history of the sport walked through Coogan's, the history of the sport, you know, and, I, I, and I'm very lucky to have that happen. To have all my heroes 
to come by uh, and be able to see them and 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 sit with them as friends. And, and they, a lot of them became my friends. Yeah, like I, said, I was on the phone with Matt Sensowitz's uh, father last night, and and I became the critic of uh, of the best book award for Tafwa, uh, you know, the track and field ride. So I probably read. 30, 40 bucks a year just on track and field. Don't remember anything I read, but I read them. You know. I, I think the community aspect you mentioned, though, of having those athletes come like and you introduce them. It's, you know, it's journalists, it's coaches, it's it's those sort of people. But it's also just track junkies who are there and they get to mingle with their idols. And that's not something you wouldn't see after, you know, a big football game, all the NFL players would go to a bar and hang out with the fans. But you kind of get that at Milrose and the Fifth Avenue Mile, which is pretty special. Everybody was accessible. I remember, uh, I think it was uh, Walt Murphy telling Carl Lewis what he ran in high school. Carl Lewis didn't remember his times. Walt Murphy told Carl Lewis his times that he ran in high school. And Carl just said, wow, I did that? Holy mackerel. Oh, well, that was, wow. And I mean, it, and that's... If you looked at the Sports Illustrated magazines on the wall, everybody knows who the cover was about. But these guys would start pointing to fans inside the arenas and, and they would say, oh, you know who that is? They would tell you the guy sitting down watching the guy who was breaking the record. That's how good and uh, uh, these re, uh, writers and uh, aficionados were. Uh, I was, you know, to be around people who love the sport, especially the Milrose Week was absolutely uh, our Mardi Gras. It, it was like a Mardi Gras for us. I mean, uh, people who really knew the sport. Uh, and that's uh, what's great about Moros. You know, that, and, and I compare that to the Oregon experience when people, uh, the, the, the fans out there uh, watch it. You guys should do a trivia contest and challenge the West Coast and the East Coast and put up with teams. I mean, I'll put an East Coast team up against that. I'll, I'll just get uh, Dave Johnson from Penn Relays I'll get Walt Murphy. I'll get Jack, uh, Jack Track, uh, Pfeiffer. Uh, I'll put my team together. I'll challenge anybody in the country to go against, and you guys can develop the questions. And I'll put a thousand bucks up for the winner. Well, that'd be fun. Peter, one story I wanted, wanted you to tell was uh, this didn't make it into the article I wrote in February, but I thought it was a really great story, and maybe our listeners would enjoy it. The Al Order story from him drinking at Coogan's. Can you tell us that, please? Well, you talk about incredible men. Al Order was like, I mean, he was a movie. I mean, Al Order was bigger than life. You know, you know. not only did he have, he probably would have had five gold medals if uh, he'd been allowed to go to, to Russia, to Moscow. But, and the last one he threw, I think he had a cracked rib when he got his last gold medal. It was the last toss uh, they got that. But we're sitting down, there's a bunch of writers. Walt Murphy was there that day also. And, they're all sitting, and we began drinking probably about two o'clock, and now it's about nine o'clock at night, and pitches of beer are just coming over, and Al's telling great stories, and and then Walt Murphy looks at him and says, "Hey Al, we've been drinking beer on. I've been to the bathroom three times. I just realized you haven't gone to the bathroom. You've been here drinking with us for almost eight hours, and you haven't gone to the bathroom." And Al lifts up his beer, takes a sip, and he looks at me and goes, I'm a fucking Olympian. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you have to bleep that. But uh, and when he said that, it was everybody just looking. We just cracked up. And then after that, where do we go? We go down to a place called Showman's in Harlem. And 
Al loved uh, blues and jazz. And uh, we took him to Showman's and I got him up on stage at this and he couldn't sing, believe me. But I have him up, one of, one of the great blues singers up there. I forget his name was Wes something. And he says, yeah, do a lick on that, Al. And I mean, Al tried to sing. It was the worst thing. I mean, if it was four o'clock in the morning, it would have been good because he would have cleared out the whole place. Um, but he had so much fun. Al was a, a, an, an incredible person. Again, another guy, accessible and a great painter, by the way, a, a modern artist. Uh, he gave me his discus, uh, one of his discus. And um, his wife, Kathy, who was a sprinter, she lives down in Florida right now. She, I, I still communicate with her. Uh, but the larger than life. And here it is. The only man to have four Olympic gold medals in uh, one uh, in one event. The, uh, the only other person who got it after him was Carl Lewis in the long jump. Yep. So th there's, your, there's your trivia question right there. Uh, what, what the two guys, and both of them were Coogan's guys. You know? And I love that Carl Lewis is down in Texas the, uh, coaching down there. What a team they got down there. You know, what a group of coaches. Holy God. I mean, that's, that's just incredible. The track world's going to miss Coogan's big time. I mean, there's just no way around it. What about Washington Heights? There's needs for restaurants, right? I get it with COVID that yeah. I don't know how any restaurant's staying in business, but long term, what do you think will be there? I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I think 50% of small businesses are going to close in America. And it, it, it's when you look at the city, the city's going to have to be reinvented. Uh, the whole concept of city is going to have to be reinvented. Um, funny, two of the people who hung out at Coogan's, one, Dixon Despamier, uh, a, a fantastic doctor, but he's the father of the vertical farm. So, I mean, I, I talked to him uh, two days ago and I said, Dixon, the vertical farm, the timing's right. And basically bring farming into urban areas and putting them in buildings because we're going to have empty buildings. There's going to be empty buildings in the city. And the other uh, was Mindy Full of Love, Dr. Mindy Full of Love. And she just put a book out called Main Street, which she called me to say, by the way, we wrote about Coogan's. And it's what is Main Street? So she literally went to 175 cities in 14 countries to look at what brings people to Main Street. Why is it so important? What is Main Street? You know, what's exchanged on Main Street? What what takes place? And um, she used Coogan's as an example of when it, it works um, as part of a Main Street experience. So here are two people who are dealing with exactly the emergency that's going on in the world, in our country right now. You know, what happens to the city and what happened? And look how fragile the delivery system of food was during this whole thing. I mean, what happens when the workers in the fields all get sick? So if you go into vertical farming, there's no pesticides. You have a controlled uh, area for it. I mean, there's starvation still going on in the world. What happens to the farmers? Well, you bring them in. You make them the first ones able to do the vertical farming. You you know, let them train them for that. And then you can let forests grow because we need more forest. We tore them all down. We need the forest to, to breathe. Um, so this all happened. This is all Coogan's. So I had these guys um, in the bar, a scientist. And you had runners who I think are all science. If you're going to be a runner, you become a scientist to your own body. You have to be a physiologist to yourself. And um, you, you combine that. I mean, if you care about yourself, you care about the environment. So the, I think that 100% of the running community 
and I'd say 99% is involved with our uh, cleaning up our environment because you have to, you're a breathing machine. You should get your own podcast. I think we should have a new podcast. I want to be the first guy with you guys. No, you we guys should like we should like branch off. Robert's always wanted to have like a current events politics podcast. It should be like Rojo and Peter. Well, the other thing, music. I, I, I'm a music freak. The first thing I would ask anybody, and that's another thing we used to do at Coogan's, when he sat at a table, and again, people with different things, uh, different viewpoints, and I, you talk music to them. You know, it's like talking about their show. But you let people talk, you know, as much as I can talk to you guys. Believe me, I would shut my mouth a lot to listen to the stories that were told to me at Coogan's. And when you let people talk about with the music they love and the children they love and all that, you really find a way to get into their hearts, climb into their hearts, and you, and you find a way to solve problems. You really find uh, yeah, problem, problem solving. You have to define the problem first. And we, we're not doing that. We're not defining our problem. People talking about cops and, and what they've done with the uh, uh, minority communities. Listen, police are a reflection of society as a whole. They're not separate from society. They're part of society as a whole. If there's a problem with 5% of those cops being bad, there's a problem with 5% of our society being bad. And we, we've taken them and we've ostracized the police to make them feel like, you know, the freaks. And why would they want to get out of a car anymore? Why do they, and, and I'll tell you, the problem going on in a lot of the cities right now, cops aren't getting out of the cars because they're afraid they're going to start a riot or they're afraid they're going to lose their pension. So now crimes figures are going to go up. And who's that help? The idiot who's the head of this country right now. And we have to start treating the police as if they're part of our communities, not exceptional to our communities. So that's our own bias and stereotyping. I'm, I'm, listen, bring brought up Irish. I watched my whole race and generations before me stereotyped as drunks, papists, and uh, 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 Philistines, and, and people who are parochial in, in their thinking. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go who the great, I might talk about Yeats, I'm not going to talk about uh, Heaney, the great poets, or James Joyce writing the greatest novel, or the greatest playwrights uh, being, but the first thing, the Irish were stereotyped with that. We, we you know, we, we were blacks, uh, in, in a sense, uh, in the 1840s. You know, we were, you know, they, they treated us as low as anybody. But the one thing the African-American experience has that nobody has ever had was the slavery experience where families were broken up, children were taken from their mothers. Uh, there's nothing more violent to me in, in, in my looking at life than the black experience in the world and especially in the United States. It's our stain and we have to do something about it. You know, and it's a continual story. It's not that there's no quick fix. This is a, a story that we're going to be dealing with for a long, long time. It's funny when you look at running, um, and running is a, a very integrated sport. And, you know, you have sprinters, and people think of sprinters. Oh, those are black people. And they think of why, oh, they're the long distance. Well, of course, the Africans came, and they changed that whole game around. But now you have, you know, people running in each other's races. And it's important. I mean, it's... Um, we have to see what we have in common. That's it. We have to see what we have in common. There's no different. There's no difference between anybody when they're in search of safety, joy, and an intellectual experience. There's no no difference. There's no racial difference. We all want the same things. We just have to blend it in a different way. And we got to stop this thing where we ghetto ghettoize people and put them in ghettos.
search for commonality. You said it great. And I'll defend Facebook. It's funny because we'll talk about the ad here and end with the ad because I had no idea. They reached out to us. I'm surprised people haven't noticed this, but there's like a two-second cameo of Alan Webb singing karaoke. People probably don't realize it's Alan. And this ad agency reached out and said, hey, can we use this clip for something for Coogan's? And I said, sure. I'm like, hey, just give us a link back. I did not realize this was a national campaign for Facebook or what it was. But then I saw it was Facebook afterwards, and I'm like, you've touched on all of these things. It's it's very interesting. But I'll defend Facebook to the death for defending free speech. People have a right to say what they want. Obviously, there's oh, boundaries yeah. in their community. But my And I'll defend Mark Zuckerberg because people define what they don't like as hate. But I think that one issue with Facebook and all these social media platforms is, and like the Fox News or whatever, MSNBC, they silo people off. They, they show you, like, let's run. One thing I like about it is there's people – on the left, people on the right, it's all posted. Nothing's, you're not just filtering it. Everyone sees it. We have problems. Sure. We have to delete it, but like it's a common melting pot in some ways. It gets contentious at times, but it's not a silo. There's no algorithm showing you only what you want to see or what you don't want to see. So I think it's a tough thing. You can't have the person on it yelling fire, you know, in a sense, you know, fire in the movie house or fire in the playhouse. And you, you have certain people getting on it. And of course uh, the stuff's, you know, being susceptible to like uh, people like uh, the Russians, yeah, uh, and and what they can do with this, it's it's a very dangerous place today. It's 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 very hard. Um, I, I'm going to stay more involved probably um, in in the political world today and the running world than I ever was because now I have more time for it. And and there's things I I really want done. You know, uh, running, I really want to unify some source of a defense fund for running. And when I say fund, I mean a group that when, you know, we find out there's a running program that's going to be closed down at some college that this group, we as a unitary group, a powerful, powerful group of people, we can defend, say, don't do that. That's not smart. You know, keep that program. Running is a great, running is a freedom sport. Running is about democracy moving, you know, it, it's about ambulation in the naturalness of the human being. Um, and we ha- I, that's one of the things I really I, I want to do. And I ask you guys, what's the, you know, what's the most important groups uh, to running? What's the most important people in running? We have to you know, start deciding who that is and bring them together so they can defend our sport. And, and really, instead of just being, you know, I, I see we can chat all day. We can pick on everybody. We, we see what's going on with New York Roadrunners. Uh, there's problems there, there's problems there. But again, how do we make our sport a cohesive voice and make it powerful? And we have to find out what do we have in common. And that's also bringing together shoe companies, which is almost impossible to do. I mean, these are uh, competitors who, you know, cut each other's throats uh, or Achilles in their case, uh, go after each other's Achilles heels. But we, how do we bring them together to be a, a defense force for our great sport? We have to do this. And I want to be involved uh, at bringing people together for that. I think you'd be a good person to do it. So r- real quickly, the ad itself oh, yeah. features running. How did yeah. that come about? How did you, this guy who's 72 oh. years old, end up running down 73? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Listen, I have a new hip. I had a new hip. The day of the ad, the night before the ad, I got food poisoning. They had stuck me in, in a hotel because uh, I had moved out of the city for um, – out here i'm out here in long island and but i didn't want to complain you know saying oh man he's a pain in the neck oh what a diva 
you know. So here we have all these directors. They have all these uh, cinematographers and, you, you know, guys holding microphones. You know, it was like 75 people on the shoot. And I'm not going to complain. So I, I remember I took like a handful of Nexium, uh, put it in a soda bottle, shook it up, drank some Pepsi, and drank like three gallons of water to get it out of my system. So I, I never told anybody. Then I pulled my groin muscle um, running because I'm favoring my leg because I have the new hip. But I didn't want to tell them. And uh, it wasn't like being brave. I, I, I didn't want to screw up the ad. I thought it was important what was going on. And I liked being in it. So I never told them all these problems. Like, oh, I have a pulled groin muscle. Oh, I have stomach poisoning. Oh, I have a new hip, guys. It's uh, I, I really shouldn't be doing this. I just did the goddamn thing. I mean, it, and because, and the running thing, I, I just, it had a stunt guy for me for running. Um, and I mean, I completely, he, to do? he was, a, I didn't, he was just going to run and say, all right, here's the way you have to run. Here's the pace you got to run. And he was a nice guy. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I go, just sit down. I go, have a drink, get paid. I'll tell him I still need you, but I don't need you. You know, I said, I'll do this running myself because I wanted to feel into it. I wanted to sweat, you know, the reason we have never had a great track movie, running movie. I mean, you know, you had the Prefontaine, you had two movies and a documentary on them, but you never had a great, because you never could really smell the sweat off the screen. And when that great movie comes out, we're going to, it would do for a great track movie because any track book could be a movie. I mean, you have man against, you know, uh, overcoming something. That's what running is, overcoming something. And, but I, I, I didn't want, I wanted that sweat. I wanted you, when you saw that ad, to smell the sweat coming off me running. And that's why I was willing to do anything, destroy my body. I didn't give a damn. I wanted the sweat coming off. And they were saying, well, pour some more. I go, no, uh-uh. it's got to be real sweat. And that's why I, I, I ran so hard. And that's why when you're looking at it, that's sweat. That is not water. You know. So it, I did it because I wanted it to be authentic. And um, I didn't want to complain. And, uh, and I thought that it became that running became the modus. And they show Coogan's as a running bar, that that banner um, in there. That, that was important to me to, to let the nation know that. And I didn't realize how big this ad was going to go. I, I had no idea. And it's going to be another. They're doing a three minute film that's coming out, I think, this week. Uh, I have no idea. Yeah, do the other owners, they a little jealous? They call you Hollywood now? or Well, you, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, I I brought them in. You know, first when they talked to me about doing it, they talked to me alone. And I said, no, nah, you can't. Nah, that doesn't work, guys. I go, I had two partners for 35 years. We never had an argument. We always got along. I go, you hire me, you hire them. So we're, we were a package. And no, they were happy. They were happy. You know, we we're always happy for each other. You know, and um, the next day, as you say, the three minute, they're going to be in more of it, I hope. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm not in any of it, but um, uh, we'll see what happens. But my partners, can you imagine being with someone with 35? You guys, have you, you know, I don't know how many years you've been together, but I've never had an argument with my partners because we traveled. I mean, can you imagine that with you guys? But we valued each other. I guess other. your partners aren't your brother. <laughs> but, but we valued each other's uh, talents. And we've and we were all honest, you know, to each other. So when you have that, there's no problems. And, and the egos, the three of us, we don't care. I mean, we just don't. You know, Law and Order. And I said to the, I, we put Coogan's in the uh, Law and Order film scene. 
They said, no, we don't do that because, you know, there might be a dead body. I said, we love dead bodies. We we opened up with dead bodies all around. We'd like, we don't care. Put Coogan's in this. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. Great, good. Yeah, put us in. We Bloodshed's cool. Um, but, you know, that was our beginning. When we first had Coogan's, there were dead bodies in the street up there, you know, and I'm not making light of it, but. It did. It, I didn't care about Coogan's being identified with a, a murder taking place inside the bar. I mean, I, I thought that was, you know, kind of cool. <laughs> I thought it was true to the history. <laughs> you guys, what are you going to be doing next after? Who do you got next now for your next interview? We've got a few more track meets coming. You know, Mo Faro is running this weekend, but I don't know what we're going to do in the winter. So we'll just have you as a regular guest. Jonathan and I were talking. This is, again, the perfect time to bring the pole vault into Grand Central Station and in the middle of a city, you know, do it at Times Square, you know, throw the shot put, you know, Rockefeller Center. I mean, this is, I would love to go up to the top of the Empire State Building and do a high jump, you know, have someone do, and you could call it the highest high jump in the world. But these are fun things that, you know, I hope the leadership of our, our, our sport starts bringing track and field into, and it doesn't have to be big cities, into villages. Into small towns, have that have that race down the middle of the town. You know, when we were kids, it was the fastest kid who ran around the block. You know, that was that was the big race in our neighborhood. When you brought up, you had a race around an entire block. So that means you had a corner. In fact, we should do that with some elite runners. That would be a great race to have them race because you have to slow up as you come to the cur. You know, the corner. Turn, that could be a very interesting, but I think we have to start doing that. And again, I, if I was in, in the running business uh, and making decisions, I would start doing more running inside cities and ta- outside the arena, outside the, the field and doing more in cities. I would have big track races ending or road races ending where there are arenas and have, you know, you get, not only do you pay to get in the race, but you pay for a ticket to go watch a track event and you would fill arenas up with people who really care about it. Runners. There you have it, folks. The authentic Peter Walsh with more creative ideas than Max Siegel has ever given me in several years. And I, Max hey. would be a little bit worried because Peter probably worked for half that $1.2, $1.3 million salary. So, <laughs> yeah. So did you hear about the two Irish guys who left the bar? No. It could happen. <laughs> I have one for you. I don't know. There's three guys going to a bar, an Irish guy, an Englishman, and a Scotsman. They order three pints of beer. The beer comes. The Englishman looks at his pint and there's a fly in the top of it. He goes, I say, bartender, over here. This is a fly might be. Take it away. I'll never drink here again. The Scotsman gets his, looks, he sees a fly in his beer, and he drinks it down after throwing the fly out. And the Irishman gets his beer. He looks into it. He grabs the fly and he goes, spit it out, you little fucker. <laughs> anyway, guys, I love being with you. Thank you. I'm going to make sure I can call you guys when I have a thought coming through my brain. So I'm going to bother you with those things. And um, But Jonathan, you know, we go back a ways and you did a great story on that. And you guys, I follow you. And um, it's important to our, our sport, the greatest sport in the world. We have the greatest sport in the world. Democracy on the run. That's what we are. We are. And, and we take care of the big people. We give them shot puts and discuses. You know, we take care of the agile. We give them uh, pole vaults. 
You know, we, we, we're a three ring. We got the most exciting sport. We're a three ring circus. No other sport has this. We just got to translate it to people who aren't used to seeing the greatness. Yeah, that's always my argument. Get them and show the average sports fan an 800 meter race and oh, try and hook them. You know, I still consider the 800 meter the greatest race. I mean, when you see Dave Waddle run in the Olympics, I used to show that to my daughters before every race they ever ran. We would watch that the night before. We would watch that the night before. I said, he can't win. He's, there's no way that he's going to win. I would say the same routine to my daughters. Look, he's a loser. This guy's a loser. And, and he, what, he defeats a guy, the Russian, who was never defeated in two years at the end of that race. That's still one of the oh, – I'd be interested in you guys picking out your uh, all-time greatest races. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've done shows on that before. But the 800, you got to be a gladiator. You're the gladiator. That's why I love AG. And, and now we have uh, – uh, the kid uh, who wants to be a football player all the time. Um, Donovan Brazier. Oh, yeah. man. I love that guy. He, he's yeah. just got to get that football out of his head, man. It, yeah. I mean, he's so beautiful to watch. And yeah, absolutely. Models, we could get – I should open a modeling agency. Runners are the best-looking people there are in any sport. They're all in shape. We get, and, and and if they're oversized, we can do oversized modeling and get a couple of the, our shop putters, you know, the, the, the guys. Um we have the best looking people of any great. They already in the shape they're looking for, for models. We should do a modeling agency. Yeah. yeah. Well, Peter, I'm sure we could talk all day, but yeah. Jenny I Simpson. Gonna, I would watch, I think Jenny Simpson is one of the best looking women in America. I, you show me someone better looking. She should be a, a star. She should be an anchor on television. I love Jenny. She was great. Another great runner. Well, you got to go into politics. You got to run USATF and start your modeling agency. So we better let you go. Yeah, thank you for that. joining us. And I, you can tell I'm a whore. Well, Walsh the whore. We whored everybody up in our neighborhood. No. But yeah, I love you guys. Uh, stay in touch. And um, I'll talk to you on the phone uh, after we're off.